What's up, y'all? How's it going? Uh, my name is Yusuf. I'm the college director here, and man, I'm pumped to be here. It's good to see your beautiful faces. Um, hey, if this is your first time here, um, we actually just wrapped up a uh, series on generosity. It's called Gener- uh, Generous Worship. Uh, and w- what we did was we took the great commandment and we applied it to our finances, really asking and answering the question, what does it look like to love the Lord our God with our mind, heart, soul, and strength and with our money, right? Uh, and there's actually a discipleship tool, um, like a graphic that we had, where we worked through each element of the great commandment um, as it applies to our finances. And so we said, okay, what does it look like to love the Lord our God with our strength? Okay, that makes me an obedient giver, Right? Loving the Lord with my heart when it comes to my money makes me a joyful giver. My emotions are involved. Uh, With my mind, I'm a thoughtful giver. I actually think about what I'm doing when I give. And with my soul, I'm a sacrificial giver, right? I I give till it hurts. Um, And so if you haven't gotten a chance to uh, watch that sermon series, I would actually encourage you. uh, You know, we have a thing called the Internet nowadays that you can just, uh, you know, go to that and, you know, you know what the deal is. So go ahead and and catch up on that. But uh, for today... What we're talking about is the fact that, you know, when it comes to the great commandment, Jesus isn't just talking about the area of our finances, right? Like when he says, hey, love the Lord your God with your mind, heart, soul, and strength, he means in every area of life, not just our finances. And so what I want to do today is really just talk through how do we, how do, we do that, right? Like how do, we, how do we actually apply the great commandment to every aspect of our lives? Because I would argue that it's, it's growing in our love for God and growing in his un, or our understanding of his love for us that leads to more and more Christ-likeness, which is the ultimate goal of discipleship. And so when it comes to discipleship, there are many definitions, but for our purposes today, what I mean is the act of growing in Christ-likeness in every area of our lives as we learn more and more what it looks like to love God. And love others. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we imitate Christ in our marriage? How do we imitate Christ as a roommate? How do we imitate Christ when it comes to reading scripture and evangelism, et cetera, et cetera? But I also believe that in order to understand the how of discipleship, we have to first understand the heart of discipleship right? Like what's at its core, like what, if you peel back all the implications and applications of discipleship, what's the foundation? Because I feel like that's where we, that's where we need to start if we're really going to talk about how, right? We need to know what we're talking about because it just doesn't make sense to learn how to do something that you don't really even know what the what, what is, Right? And so that's why today's sermon is titled, The Heart and the How. We must first understand the heart of discipleship before we get to the how. And that's what I'm hoping for us to process together um, by looking at the story of the rich young ruler. All right, so story of the rich young ruler. What can we say about this guy? Uh, One thing we can say is that his life is pretty awesome, right? Uh, And I'm not just, I'm not just saying that by like worldly standards or like standards back then. I'm talking about like by our standards in here, he's rich. He's, he's wealthy. Like he's accumulated wealth for himself, whether it's through inheritance, whether it's by the sweat of his brow. He's young and he's influential. Like he's a ruler. He has, 
he has some recognizable authority and influence. And so as much as you're tempted to judge a guy like this because you know how the story ends, I would argue that if he was here, you would be more drawn to him than repulsed by him. Right? For real, like some of y'all would be like, yo, rich, young, influential, is he single? Right? (laughs) And so what's crazy about him, though, is we see that his life has everything this world says will satisfy, and yet something's missing. And that thing isn't, isn't physical, which leads him to the feet of Jesus. He's, got, he's lacking something, and it's spiritual. And it's not a casual pass by when he sees Jesus either. Text says he runs up to him. So it's not like he saw Jesus and was just like, oh, what's up? Hey, I have this burning question. He, he sprints to Jesus. He runs to him. And so you can say a lot about this guy, but I think the first thing we can say is he desperately cares what Jesus has to say. He cares what Jesus has to say. And so before we judge him, I actually think we could learn a little bit from him, right? Like, like do you care what Jesus has to say? Do you desperately care what he has to say about this area of discipleship? We see in him a desire to learn. Do you really care? what Jesus has to say about hearing God or what it, what it looks like to, to be transformed into the image of Christ. Do you care? Because I find it awkward to sit here and teach about how if like, you know, if you don't really care to begin with, like it's awkward for you, right? Like if you were to, like who here has heard of underwater basket weaving? Anyone? Anyone know what that is? Okay. If you were to ask me, hey, do you want to learn how to underwater basket weave? I would say hard pass. No. Why? Because I don't, I don't care. I don't care about underwater basket weaving. I don't even really know what it is. I heard it in a movie a couple like years ago, and it's just always been embedded in my vocabulary. But I won't Google it because you Google things you care about, and I don't care, right? And just context, it has to do with being underwater, and that's all I need to hear to be like, no, that's not me. Hard pass. So before we get into the how, I think it's fitting to really gut check yourself. Do I care what Jesus has to say about what lies at the heart of discipleship? And if the answer is no, we're not going to kick you out, right? Security, get them, right? Everyone there. But I really do desire that you, that you would actually question that. Do I care? Because Jesus desires that you would know what's at the heart of discipleship. He desires that the rich young ruler knows what's at the heart of discipleship. That's why after this entire conversation, the last thing Jesus says to him is, follow me. Follow me. I think when we're asking the question, what lies at the heart of discipleship, it helps to know what doesn't lie at the heart of discipleship. And even though we can learn from this guy's spiritual curiosity, I'm definitely not saying that just because he's interested in what Jesus has to say that he's a true disciple, right? And so that's the first thing we can, we can hear and take away from this, that spiritual curiosity is not at the heart of discipleship. But neither is esteeming Jesus highly without truly understanding who he is and why he's come. Because verse 18 straight up says the rich young ruler calls Jesus a good teacher. And he doesn't use that word good as to say that Jesus is good at teaching. He uses that word good as to say that Jesus is a good person. And Jesus isn't flattered. 
he, he challenges him like, hey, why did, you, why did you call me that? Why'd you call me that? No one is good except God alone. And he says something there. Him, that statement alone, I, I'm thoroughly confident that no one naturally believes that. Last week, uh, we had our Well College Night, our second one of the semester. Uh, and every Well College Night, I'll talk for 10 minutes on a parable or a story in the Bible. And I actually taught on this one. And as I was preparing the message earlier in that day, I came across this verse. Uh, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I was like, with my friend Ben at a coffee shop. And I, I just randomly thought, you know what? This is a good opportunity to see how many people believe that. So I just went up to random people and I asked them, hey, do you think you're a good person? Yes or no question. Hey, do you think you're a good person? I asked probably 80 to 90 people throughout the course of the day. I went on campus and asked everyone. Two people said no. And one person said it's not up to me. And he was closer than the rest of them, right? There's something about us. We don't actually believe that only God is good. And I think that actually points to the original sin. It points to the very brokenness of humanity. It does. If you look back in Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve, hey, trust me as the source of good to be your source for what is good and what isn't. Trust me. Or you can eat from this tree and decide for yourselves what you think is good. Just, just know that when you do that, you, you're cutting me out of the equation. You're, you're cutting yourself off from the source of life and goodness. And it says that they, they sin, they eat of that tree. After the, certain temp, after the serpent tempts them with what? The promise to be like God, knowing good and evil. Cut God out of the equation, judge for yourselves what's good and what isn't. And the beautiful thing there is in that same chapter where we see sin enter the world through Adam and Eve, we also see a promise of God to send a savior, someone with, that would redeem humanity and right the wrong in the garden. And Jesus comes on the scene as God's promised savior in Genesis. And he's not flattered by the use of this man's good because it's superficial. Jesus doesn't care to be highly esteemed if you don't know, in essence, who he is and why he's come. He doesn't care, right? Uh, I, uh, I preached at uh, my college ministry back in college, um, and I talked on how Jesus is uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm messing the story up. Okay, so like, I'm talking about like eight years ago when I was in college, I preached at our college ministry uh, on how Jesus is the only way to, to the Father. And I had a girl come up to me afterwards, and she was like, yo, man, I, I've been on a spiritual journey. I've been trying to, like, figure out the spiritual puzzle pieces. I've been listening to a bunch of religious teachers and philosophers. And, man, what you said about Jesus, I realized Jesus is the missing piece. Jesus is the missing piece to this spiritual puzzle that I'm putting together. And I immediately, as she said that, I'm like, yo, this girl just missed it. She sat through 30 minutes of me teaching how Jesus is the only piece, right, to the equation of, of being with the Father and attaining eternal life. She missed it completely. And she even came up to me and was like, yo, I think you're a really good teacher. I was like, why do you call me good? Only God is good. I'm just kidding. I'm saying. 
Uh, I said thanks. I said thanks like a normal person. Uh, but, but, but it was hard for me to be in any way excited that she thought the teaching was good, knowing that she thinks she's closer to eternity and yet couldn't be further from it because Jesus is just a piece. See, Jesus doesn't care to be highly esteemed because at the heart of discipleship is not a highly respected view of Jesus if it means missing who he truly is. You don't win brownie points with him. And yet, he still answers the rich young ruler's question. How do I attain eternal life? Jesus is like, okay. You want to earn your way? Okay, you want to earn your way to eternal life. Okay. And then he starts listening through the Ten Commandments. The rich young ruler is like, yo, I've done all of this since my youth. And if I was there, I would have interjected like, wow, rich young ruler is also a rich young liar, right? <laughs> because he obviously, he didn't hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he said, you don't have to take someone's life to be a murderer. You harbor resentment, you, you get angry at another brother, you murdered them in your heart. You don't have to cheat on your spouse to be an adulterer. You lust after another man or a woman. You're an adulterer in your heart, right? And so it starts to make sense when you see that he feels like he's been obeying the law to the letter. It makes sense that this rich young ruler is, is mega religious. And if, if the fact that he kneeled at Jesus' feet doesn't give it away, the fact that he thinks he's kept the law since he was a kid does. He's got the right religious motions, right, from the outside looking in. He runs to Jesus. He gets on his knees. He esteems Jesus highly, desires to gain eternal life, genuinely cares what Jesus has to say, and yet it's still not enough because Jesus is like, yo, there's, there's something you lack. Because at the heart of discipleship is not a religious lifestyle. And I think a lot of us in here really actually need to hear that. Just because you show up to Bible study or church every Sunday doesn't mean by default you're following Christ. Just because you only hang out with other Christians and, and don't use real curse words doesn't mean that you're following Christ. Just because you go through the religious motions doesn't mean that you get it. And we see this rich young ruler convinced that he's done it all, that he's, he's followed the law to the letter and it's not enough. He doesn't get it. But rather than ridicule him like I would have, Jesus, it says, verse 21, that he looks at him and loved him. In Jesus is a genuine desire, genuine, that he would understand what, what's at the heart of discipleship. He genuinely cares. And so he cuts straight to this man's heart with surgical precision by telling him, hey, there's one thing you like. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man that wants ran to Jesus with eagerness, walked away from him with sorrow. And I think this right here should actually mess with us. 
because this isn't about money, if you can't tell at this point. It's not about wealth. It's about the fact that this, this man's idol was money. That, that at the core of this man's affection, at the core of his heart was a love for money that superseded his love for God. And I, the reason why I think that should mess with us is because I feel like we have a lot more in common with this man than we're willing to admit. So let me ask you, what's the thing that if you were honest with yourself, you would struggle to give up if the king of the universe asked it of you? What, like, what's your idol or idols? And I think sometimes it's hard to just answer that question. And so, so I want to do somewhat of a guided exercise I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask four or five questions, and I want, you to, I want you to really ponder and reflect honestly what the answers to those questions are. And see if one or two things stick out. What do you fear losing more than anything? What is something that whether you want to admit it or not tends to define you? You find your value in it. What, what drives you or motivates you on a day-to-day basis? What consumes your thoughts on most days? If only I had blank, I would be complete. Now, I would encourage you, take this exercise seriously. Let it mess with you. On your way home, tonight, as you're eating dinner, let those questions mess with you. Because Jesus genuinely desires to uproot the idols that exist in our hearts. Um, I don't know about you guys, but for me, the longest, uh, for the longest time, um, my idol was intelligence. And I'm not just talking about being perceived as being smart. Um, but really just within myself, the confidence to know that no matter what problem comes my way, I'm competent enough to solve it. Enneagram 5, anyone? Right? Our biggest fear is being incompetent. And I had no idea just how much of an idol this was until a few years ago when I started working at Texas Instruments. I was an electrical engineer, and my job was to solve customers' problems. And so they would send us their boards, these other engineers that are trying to use our stuff. They would send us the, the boards that they're trying to put our part into. And I would take a look at their boards and try and figure out what the problem is. And I remember coming into work one day, 8 o'clock in the morning. And the first thing I'm going to work on, to me, is supposed to be the easiest thing of the day. So I start working on it real quick. I think it's going to take 30 minutes. It takes about an hour. But then two hours pass by. Two hours turn into four hours. Six hours, and I'm just in there trying to figure it out. Some of my coworkers are like, bro, let's go to lunch. Like, it would be good for you to actually take a break and maybe, and I just, I couldn't do it. I was, I was, I was just stuck trying to solve this, this problem. So much so that as a married man, I didn't get home that day until six in the morning. I almost felt like I couldn't live with myself unless I figured out this 
this issue with this part. And the sad part is there was no pressing deadline, right? Like some of you guys are like in college, can relate. But I didn't have a paper due the next morning, right? This wasn't due. I had like a month or two to work on it. There was no excuse for that. But for me, my my value was caught up in it, right? I believed the lie that my worth was found in whether I could debug a, a small piece of hardware And it took looking at my wife's horrified face to realize, okay, there's a problem. There's an issue. So what is that for you? What is that idol for you? Rich young ruler turns away, walks away sad. Jesus looks around to his disciples and tells them, listen, it's extremely hard for guys like this to get into the kingdom. And all of his disciples, they, they're flabbergasted. They're like, what? How? how? If this guy doesn't get in, then how is it possible? And I think it's easy to hear that and, and not really know what they mean. The reason why they're so mind blown that this guy doesn't, doesn't get in is because to this guy, in Jewish culture, this guy is as holy as they come. He follows all the commandments and he's rich and influential. And at that time, they believed that God actually blesses those monetarily that are closest to him. And so he comes in and they think, yo, this is, this is the disciple poster child. This, is, this guy is blessed physically and spiritually. He's God's best friend. And Jesus looks at him and says, yo, it's, it's, it's almost impossible for guys like him to get in. To them, the man's wealth and influence is evidence of God's approval that he is, he's up there. And once again, I think that's actually true in our culture, cultural context as well, like Christian culture. We assume that Christian influencers or Christian worship leaders or Christian whatever are more holy because they have a large following, because they're influential. And if you're tempted to say, well, no, I don't put anyone on a pedestal. Well, think about the last time someone you admired in the Christian world Think about the last time they had a moral failure. What was your gut reaction? What was your knee-jerk reaction? I'm willing to guess it was, wait, them? Wait, are you, like, they, they're broken and sinful too? It's only after that reaction of disbelief that we actually start to show some compassion for the people that may be negatively impacted by their sin. But the first reaction is disbelief. Because we do that. We assume that influential Christians are more holy. We do the same thing the disciples did. Because we believe spiritual condition can be determined by physical appearance. And so the disciples look around and are like, yo, if this guy doesn't get in, what hope does anyone have? And Jesus is like, Exactly. Exactly. With man, it's impossible because our hearts are just corrupt. They are naturally corrupt. And the rich young ruler's corruption, the problem with his heart, actually isn't shown just whenever he walks away from Jesus. It's shown at the very beginning of the conversation. When he asks Jesus, hey, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. To the rich young ruler, eternal life is a destination. How do I get here? I want, I want, to, I want to get here. And yet, that's not, Jesus has an entirely different definition of eternal life. John 17, 10, and this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. See, that word know is not just intellectual knowledge. It actually means like to know intimately, relationship. So to Jesus, eternal life isn't about where you go. It's about, it's about who you know. And immediately you see that this rich young ruler's heart is revealed as a religious person that doesn't actually care about having a relationship with God. He just wants what God has to offer him. And if Jesus' definition of love is self-sacrificial love, that I lay down my life, I lay down what I desire so that others would thrive, I would argue that, that this is almost the opposite, that I would use others, even God, for my own personal gain. I would argue that that falls in the category of the very opposite of love. Uh, one of my best friends, Daniel, he led me to Christ. He was the best man in my wedding. Me and him were boys. Uh, Daniel's also a drummer uh, and is also a little older than me. So while I was still in college, he had already graduated, got a job, um, and he got a really nice electric drum kit. Uh, but every holiday or so, I would go over to Daniel's house, and we would kick it for a little bit. I would leave. But one of the times when I was leaving, he looked at me and was like, yo, you know the past couple times we've come over, we haven't really hung out much. I was like, really? He was like, yeah, bro, you come in, you dap me up, you go to the corner and play my electric drum kit for two hours, you get off, you dap me up, and then you leave. I was like, word, for real? And he was joking. He knows I love him, right? We're boys. But from the outside looking in, you would see a Yusuf whose insatiable desire and love for drums would cause you to question whether, whether I actually love Daniel or just what Daniel, Daniel's drum kit, right? What's in Daniel's possession? And that's what idols do. Our idols unsurrendered turn us into self-gratifying consumers that attempt to use God and others as opposed to self-sacrifice as opposed to really loving God and loving others with all of who we are. But Jesus loves us too much to share allegiance with things that will ultimately destroy us. It's only when Jesus has our heart that we can talk about the how of discipleship. Because at the core of discipleship, the very essence of it is a heart surrendered. It's, it's not spiritual curiosity. Oh, I, I'm interested in what Jesus has to say. He's on my list of spiritual influencers. It's not religious motion. I go to church. I go home. I go to Bible study. Afterwards, I hang out with my Christian friends. I go home and volunteer with the youth group. Not even close to the heart of discipleship. Not even close. And it's not a highly esteemed view of Jesus. If you ask Muslims 
whether they believe in Jesus, they'll tell you, yes, absolutely, he's top three. Muhammad's first, Abraham's second, Jesus is third. We love Jesus. Not good enough. Only a heart surrendered. Only a heart surrendered is where it starts when it comes to following Jesus. Our hearts are so corrupt, but this is literally why Jesus came to win our hearts back, right? Um, I remember reading The Rich Young Ruler for the first time and seeing that he was sorrowful when he left Jesus. And I just remember thinking, yo, the way it reads it, it just kind of feels like he hears some bad news and he's like, oh, all right, bummer, can't follow Jesus. Kind of sad about it. But, but that word in the Greek, actually, the word sorrowful means... Overcome with sorrow so much as to cause one's death. It's the same word used in Mark 14 where Jesus is about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane to be put on trial, actually. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. Okay, so, so when the rich young ruler who withholds his riches is sorrowful to the point of death at the mere thought of losing his wealth, Jesus, the rightful heir to all earthly and heavenly riches, is grieved to the point of death because of what he's about to willingly give up. He's about to give everything he has, his very own life, for the poor. That's you and I. Spiritually bankrupt because of the condition of our hearts. We can't love God. It's not possible. We can't talk about the how of discipleship without getting to the heart that our hearts are so corrupt Unless we submit them and surrender them at the foot of the cross, it's not possible to talk about how to love God as a roommate or how to love your neighbor or how to be a good fill in the blank, how to love God with your evangelism, how to love God with your finances. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. We're too far gone. And yet Jesus gives everything, his very own life, so that we may have life and so that we can actually be given the Holy Spirit, which then allows us to be able to grow in discipleship, allows us to walk out our salvation in good works. But apart from that, there is no how to be a disciple of Christ, how to do discipleship, how to apply the great commandment, because it starts with a heart surrendered. I think it's really ironic and beautiful. If you think about the series that we've been in, Generous Worship, Tori's done a great job of just showing how each element applies to our finances. But I love that we're still talking about the great commandment and we're still using this tool. But it's not just about money. It applies to every area of our lives, which is what discipleship, which is, what discipleship is. And so I would encourage you, go to thewellaustin.com slash generosity and download uh, download this tool because it can be applied to every area of your life when it comes to your walk with Christ, right? 
And so maybe the Lord has highlighted um, the area of evangelism. He wants you to grow as, into more and more Christ-like as an evangelist. You can use this tool to assess, okay, where am I strong and where do I need to grow? Right? Maybe my mind is strong when it comes to evangelism. I know all of the tools. I read all the books. I've, I've listened to all the podcasts. But my strength is low. I don't actually do anything with that. I don't actually share the gospel with my neighbor. I don't actually share the gospel with my classmates. I don't actually engage in relationships with non-believers. I don't actually do it. Okay, praise God, right? Your righteousness is not found in you, right? Christ has paid for that so that now the Holy Spirit can now empower you as he leads you to grow in that. So, okay, now whoever's discipling you, whoever you're meeting up with to keep each other accountable, hey, the Lord is showing me I need to grow in my strength. I need to, so let's keep each other accountable, right? That's walking out your salvation, growing up into Christ. And you'd be surprised what the Lord does with that a year from now. Maybe it's praise, the area of praise, right? That when it comes to praising him, your strength is high. You'll do it. You'll, you'll open your mouth. Hallelujah. Right? You'll raise your hands. But like... Maybe, so your, your strength is there, but your heart isn't, right? That like you're not a joyful worshiper, a joyful praise person, right? Because the Lord, call, that's what he calls us to, to praise him with singing and dancing. Now, let me warn you, as the Holy Spirit starts to highlight different things in your life, as you're growing in different areas of walking in your relationship with Christ, it's going to be tempting for the Holy Spirit to identify an area and for you to be like, nope, <laughs> not that. That's too hard, right? I'm speaking from experience. I'm not naturally a shepherd. And yet Jesus is the great shepherd. And right now in my season of life as a college pastor, he wants me to grow in this area of shepherding. But it's so, it so rubs against my natural wiring. So when students come to me with problems, I'm, I'm thinking like an engineer, right? I'm like, hey, let's, okay, let's solve it. Like, let's get some pen and paper and figure it out, right? So my mind is there. I like, I, look, let's think about it. But my heart lags. Like, I'm called to not only help you navigate life, but to care for your soul in the process. And I don't get to say, no thanks, Lord, it's too hard. By the way, no, Lord, really doesn't make sense, right? It's kind of an oxymoron. No, Lord, what? It's like saying, yes, no. Right? Like, who's the Lord of your life? If you're submitted to Christ, who is in the driver's seat? He is. So if he highlights an area and you're like, no, it just doesn't make logical sense. Right? It's what it looks like to use this tool and really help aid in our, in our growth and our relationship with Jesus as we walk out becoming more and more transformed into his image. Last thing I'll say is that you will never love God perfectly in any area of your life. It's just not going to happen, right? But one day you will. That's the beauty of it, that that sanctification, that you are being made more and more into the image of Christ. 
And so if there's a genuine desire to follow and you fall often, be encouraged. Hear these words from Paul to the church of Philippians. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So you won't be perfect, but until then, it's growth. And the beauty of sanctification is that every time you mess up, you have an opportunity to receive the gospel. That my, okay, my righteousness isn't found in me, right? That I, that I, have, a, I have an advocate, the very son of God who paid for my, my shortcomings. Why? Because he loves me. And so every time you fall short, it's more of that love, like, yo, I love you. This is not going to keep you from my presence. I paid for that, so get up, let's go, right? You get more of Christ the more you desire to walk in Christ's likeness. Even when you fall, you have an opportunity to receive that much more love. And so that's the fuel. That's what the heart of discipleship produces is this this fuel, this gospel fuel that now I'm not trying to earn my righteousness, I already have it. But because God died for me, I desire to love him with my life, with the way that I love him in my finances, other areas of my life, and the way that I love others around me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, God, you did not allow us to just stay and sit in the fruit of our corrupt nature. That you saw us, you saw the ways that we don't love you, You saw the ways that we blaspheme you and the ways that we think and the ways that we think that we're good people by our own merit. We blaspheme you the way that we we think we have the right to to say who's good and who isn't. Say, man, I'm a better person than this person or I'm a better person than this person because I don't do X, Y, and Z. And even though when we do that, we blaspheme you because only you get the right as the very definition of good to make that claim, even though we blaspheme you, Lord, you still love us. You still desire us. Where we want to use you for what you have to offer, you want a relationship with us. And we thank you that you made a way to provide that, Lord. And it wasn't by doing something that didn't cost you anything. It cost you everything, and you were willing to do it because you love us. And I pray that that would be the fuel, the motivation that motivates our lifestyle. I pray that for any of us in here that that don't get that that's what lies at the heart of discipleship, a heart surrendered to the the gospel of Jesus Christ, a heart that believes that only, only he can make us righteous. For those that that think they're following Christ but don't actually believe that, I pray that you would just wake them up. Father, I pray you convict us, areas that we want to hoard to ourselves, areas your Holy Spirit is trying to touch and put your finger on. Hey, I want to 
Let's work on this, Yusuf. Nope. God, would you, would you change us? Transform us, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.